0: All of these things in the world are going on, but I don't allow them to rule me because I have something greater to stand on.
1: Feel stuck with work? Press pause and listen in. Talk Human To Me, a podcast for entrepreneurs with nothing about entrepreneurship. In our show, founders take a break and talk to us about their identity beyond their
2: company. I'm Josh shell, your host for today. In this episode, supported by The Abstract and Maori Audio, I talk with Zakia Harris, founder and creator of Shapeshifter and Your Life. But what she does is only part of who she is. How did she grapple with self-hate in her early years and eventually learn to love herself? And what did she learn about checking her personal traumas when giving advice to her teenage daughter? Have a seat and kick back while our guest reflects and reconnects with the personal experiences and roots that created a foundation for their values, philosophies, and outlook on humans. We start each episode with the same question What about humans
0: strikes you the most? What about humans strikes me? the most. I think what strikes me the most is the fact that there are many, 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 many millions of humans on the planet. And somehow, every single one of us is different. Even twins, that you can have similar facial features, you can have Similar skin tones or similar body types, but there's still this uniqueness that is individualized, this specialized blueprint that the universe is able to create for every single person, and I think that is inspiring, and it just speaks to the diversity of life and the wonder, the wonder of the universe.
2: Now. Do you feel in this world, this uniqueness that you're talking about, you've been able to observe it, Mm. do you think it's been able to thrive? At least in communities that both of us belong to?
0: I believe that the world, there's a spectrum, right? We have the light and the dark, we have life and death, we have day and night. So in many ways, I feel like there's many communities that are definitely maintaining their uniqueness. And I feel as someone who identifies as as a black woman in America, you know, I'm part of a historical legacy of people who have been very clear on differentiating themselves, differentiating their culture, stating their culture within the system of uh, white supremacy and that we are different. We're not going to be absorbed into a mono monoculture and that there's a history of resistance. Even sitting here in West Oakland, California, the birthplace of the Black Panther Party, you know, a group of people who came together to claim their unique identity and to use it to inspire so many movements around the world. At the same time, because we're part of this spectrum, there's the other part that you know, society is not designed to foster our uniqueness. It's designed to foster, as one of my mentors would say, sheepalism. <laughs> say, do you want to be a people or do you want to be a sheeple? <laughs> and so but that's not our natural way as human beings. And I think that young people today are probably the closest generation to claiming that unapologetically of saying that we're not gonna be in your boxes anymore. We're gonna break out of that. So I think that world is going towards that place, but I don't think we're there yet.
2: Before we talk about your current family under the roof, I'd love to know if your perception of really owning the unique characteristics about yourself has always been a part of you. Tell me about your life growing up.
0: I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Both of my parents grew up in a time of segregation and a time of integration. So they were a generation who remembers what it was like to watch the KKK have meetings next door to where my mother used to live. And my father was one of the first classes to integrate an all-white high school so he remembers what it was like to be called nigger and to have things thrown at him and they ended up becoming part of kind of the the latter end of the great migration of, of blacks leaving the south heading west and settled in San Francisco in the 70s and my parents pretty much came to California and split up and my mom moved to Oakland And my dad eventually moved to Oakland as well. And I pretty much was raised in a single parent household. Both my parents also were first generation in their households to go to college. So my grandmother was a maid. My other grandmother was a factory worker in Virginia. I have family that are sharecroppers. So I come from a very working class um, family. And I went to private schools in predominantly white and privileged communities that weren't just white. Growing up in the 80s in Oakland, Oakland was 60% black, Oakland had a black mayor, Oakland was a black city, so I grew up around a lot of privileged black folks too, even though I was very clear I didn't come from that privilege. I lived still in a you know middle class-ish neighborhood, <laughs> But if you went down on the corner, or you went around the block, there might be some drug activity or some gang activity. And so I was constantly having to navigate two vastly different worlds, a world of privilege that I didn't really feel that was mine and a world of working class folks. And And I had privilege in the, that circle because I could go to private school and everyone in my neighborhood went to the neighborhood school. So Navigating those worlds taught me really early on how to code switch and how to change my behaviors, my speech, to be able to communicate in different communities, not because I was being someone else, but just it allowed me to relate to different people. And I feel like that's a skill set that has helped me to this day because I can communicate with anybody without judgment from the hood to the boardroom, I, I know how to, how to talk and how to navigate. And so fast forward, I was part of a generation that was handed a, a list of boxes and told to pick one. You know, doctor, lawyer, accountant, blah, 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 and so I thought, well, I wanna make money, and I guess I'll pick law, you know? I, and I was actually fascinated by those concepts and the concept of justice and the concept of creating a world, creating a system and what that looked like. And then once I got into law school, I I learned it was a lot different than that, that wait, I have to use the same laws to advocate for justice as people are using to advocate for the 1% and it felt like twisting a lot of rhetoric that I didn't necessarily agree with. And I didn't wanna be twisting rhetoric, I just wanted to build something else. So I said, no. I ended up leaving and becoming a teacher.
2: (laughs) In a lot of modern narrative, it's interesting seeing this parallel conversation or where people speak of diversity often within groupings. I would love to hear more about your relationship with that. Like, How did you navigate around different cultural themes?
0: Well, I think one thing is that you don't really know how you live until you go to somebody else's house. <laughs> so I didn't really have much to compare it to. And then I'd go to sleepovers at Jenny's house and Jane's. I mean, for before my mother was able to buy a house, we, we had a one-bedroom. I, I slept in the room with the bed with my mom for, for years. So it wasn't until... I went to my friends' homes and I started realizing that there was a lot more privilege and they had a lot of bigger homes and they had two parents in the household. and But I, there was never a sense of lack. I never grew up with a sense of, of not having. I, I had everything that I wanted. I was solidly middle class. I think it's just you know not having that second income in the household was what was always kind of challenging. And I think when you grow up around people with privilege, you also realize they have just as many problems as everybody else. Even to this day as an adult, I don't look at people who have more privilege or more uh, wealth as having an easier life necessarily. To the contrary, I've found some of them had more challenges interpersonally, dealing with depression, dealing with suicide, dealing with drug abuse, dealing with having a lot of money but not having the attention that you wanted from your parents. And then at the same time, seeing people in the community that I lived in just not having access. You know, what I noticed and I got really clear on was that everything was really kind of set up in these tracks. And depending on what track you get put on, it really plays a significant role in determining where you end up.
2: Let's take a break. Also, a quick word about one of our supporters. So we don't do canned ad spots at Talk Human to Me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors we work with. I'm going to give Lala O'Penny a quick call, the co-founder and creative director of The Abstract. Hello. Hey, Lala. This is Jeff. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What value does your company have that personally means a lot to you?
0: With the abstract, our practice is essentially healing and dealing, sharing and caring. Um, This personally means a lot to me because it demystifies mental health work and reminds me that we're all living through the same human condition together. Like none of us lives in a bubble. And in my own journey to healing, it's been a give and take, ebb and flow, rest and recovery, coping and resiliency. Um, it's definitely hard work, but I've learned that sometimes the most profound work I can do to, is to keep things simple, take some deep breaths, remember that I love and accept myself and my emotions as they are. There's enough organized chaos and disconnect that we deal with on a day to day. Healing and dealing, sharing and caring is not only important, it's revolutionary.
2: Thank you, Lala. Now, back to the conversation.
0: I had to grapple with a lot of self-hate. You know, that's the part they don't talk about when you go to these private institutions. The diversity quota for these schools is really about making sure that white students of privilege are able to be exposed to people of color these spaces aren't necessarily safe spaces for the people of color students who are going there. And and so, yeah, I got an amazing education. I never learned about African history. I never learned about my culture. I never learned about who I was. Everything I learned about who I was was always in relationship to whiteness. The first time you, I even learned about black It was in relationship to slavery like even black history. It's in relationship to you came here as a slave I didn't know how to love my skin to love my natural hair I was always trying to assimilate in and to conform and to be accepted into this other culture that wasn't very accepting and even when you have African-Americans in these spaces that are of privilege They're aspiring towards the same level of whiteness as well And so that played a, a Significant had a significant impact on my self-esteem by the age of 14. I had tried to commit suicide By the age of 16. I was pregnant with a child that I didn't have that I was just grappling with identity. Who am I, you know, not loving myself, not being able to look on the television and see, you know, a chocolate black girl that was smart and awkward and weird and and reflected my me. And that can take a toll um, on you and your uniqueness, right? Why do you want to be unique when nothing out there validates your uniqueness? You want to conform, you want to look like everyone else and talk like everyone else because that's what's accepted. And so I had to do a lot of work in college unlearning this amazing, you know, thousands of dollar education that my mother had invested in me. I had to unlearn a lot of other aspects that did not serve my spirit. They maybe served my educational uh, focus. They maybe served my career trajectory, but they did not serve me as a human being, um, growing and learning who I was. I've been so adamant as an educator with my own daughter and her education and making sure that she's emerged, immersed in an environment that reflects her, that tells her she's beautiful, that tells her she's amazing. She goes to one of the only African-centered schools left in Oakland. It's an institution that's been around for 30 years called Ile Omade. Actually, I was a teacher at the school and my entire class that I taught first grade and they're now all graduating college. Some of them are in PhD programs. And when they've walked into these all white spaces for high school and and higher education after being in all black spaces, they found that they're more well-rounded, that they have a better ability to connect with other students because they're so clear in who they are that if you know who you are and you know your power when you're introduced to other people, there isn't a sense of less than this. And so those students have actually had a better high school experience than the students like me who came from the all white elementary schools and then transferred in because I was constantly grappling with my identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't have a sense of my power. And so, you know, I, I was spent my high school years kind of fledgling through that process so those other skills having empathy knowing who you are having a love of your culture and of yourself are just as important and they not only shape who you are but they shape the work that you that you're contributing to and so when you have a sense of identity you're going to go out there and create solutions to solve those problems versus feeling like you want to you know jump in and and do the work of status quo which isn't bad but for me I'm really clear that my work is about disrupting the status quo and not maintaining it
2: going into this world when you are pushing your daughter to continue her own transformation do you ever feel yourself being brought back to high school as a Kia (laughs) where you feel defeated and what does that feel like and how do you relive your journey to then snap to come back to it right mm-hmm. because you are a mother now and you have uh a lot of new responsibilities
0: yeah i mean it's a very difficult time to be a young person on the planet earth right now and you know my daughter is someone who I've really worked hard to instill imagination and wonder in. And, you know, a lot of her friends are addicted to their phones. They can't get off. The beauty of being a teenager is that rebellious, radical nature. Your hormones are moving around. You're coming into terms with who you are. We had, you know, television that turned off at a certain time at night. They have the Internet where you can literally Google anything. And any picture can pop up and they're not always wonderful things that we want our young people to see. And so how do I still maintain a sense of her loving herself, her knowing her power in the midst of, you know, not being able to protect her anymore. You can protect her to an extent, but she's your young people are going to get out there and go out into the real world. And the real world is all of the things most recently, my daughter in her all-black school has been having challenges with a student who keeps calling her white girl. And he's calling her white girl because of her speech and because she likes skateboarding and because her musical tastes are a little bit more unique. And it's interesting because when I went to high school and left my more affluent elementary into my more black private, but still black high school, I was called white girl. (laughs) So to your point around how, you know, when these things come up, you know, when she came home and started telling me that, you know, I could see myself going into my triggers of what it was like for me. Now, what's wonderful about that is there's actually a lot of podcasts and other content creators that are young millennial black women talking about issues like this that she can listen to and she doesn't have to just listen to me. So the fact that my daughter can like, beyond just her mom go to someone else who she thinks is way cooler than her mother Who's a black woman who's successful who's online and has a following? There's some solace in that so for her to feel like hey, okay, I'm not so bad. There's other representations I didn't have anywhere I could go when I was her age and I was going through that other than my mother to give me a pep talk and that also Understanding that my daughter and children are resilient and that we don't have to bring our pain body and, and and into our children's lives, you know, and sometimes I've been so adamant about wanting her to know who she is that she'll want to watch like some random Disney cartoon that has like every single stereotype possible. And I'm like, hey, I don't really want you to watch this. And I'm going in and talking about the patriarchy and the symbolism. And she's like, mom, 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 look, look. It's entertainment. Like, I know that. I know my history. I know who I am. I just want to watch the movie for fun. Are we good? Can I do that? And so, and then I and I have to take a step back and realize, okay, this is my baggage. This is my shit. Just because I had to go through that doesn't mean that she's having to go through that, that she's actually more acclimated, more resilient, and that she can critically think and make decisions and, and not you know lump everything in as being like negative so i think that what keeps me you know where i how i sit with that is the fact that it takes a village and also understanding that my experience was my experience and even though there might be similarities with my daughter she has her own path to walk and that i don't have to pass on all of my trauma to her
2: let's take a break also a quick word about one of our supporters. So we don't do canned ad spots at Talk Human to Me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors that we work with. I'm going to give Mauricio Escamilla a quick call. The founder and executive creative of Maori Audio, a full-service audio, sound design, and music production studio based in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mauricio. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What core value of Maori Audio personally means a lot to you? Maori Audio is the culmination of my love for music, sound, and expressive production. Drawn to music and sound at a young age, I decided to focus on the science of it all, how to capture and truly make sound as emotive and powerful as it needs to be in order to fully move and impact the viewer and listener. A core value would be working with those whose voice needs to be amplified. I've had the pleasure of working with many independent artists, producers, and filmmakers to make their production as strong as it can be. Amplifying the voice of the voiceless, specifically marginalized people, is a big part of my work. And it brings me joy and fulfillment as a person of color from immigrant parents to be able to do that. Now, back to the conversation. Now, who's in your village that helps you navigate your trauma, your journey, your joys, your successes?
0: First and foremost, it's my spiritual practice is my village, my My relationship with something bigger than me, my relationship with the divine, my relationship with my own divinity that waking up every morning having my practice keeps me grounded it gives me an awareness of not only who I am but a cosmology so that I'm here in this world but I don't have to take on all of the strappings of this world so I can understand that even though we're living in a world that's telling me it's linear and everything's compartmentalized and everything is separate that I can see a world that is whole, that I can see a world that is holistic, that I can see a world that's interconnected. And so I have a, my spiritual practice lends itself to a whole worldview that allows me to gain strength, gain courage, gain a sense of, of tenacity, of purpose, so that, yeah, all of these things in the world are going on, but I don't allow them to to rule me because I have something greater to stand on. I have the legacy of my ancestors to stand on, the prayers of my grandmother to stand on. And ancestor worship in my tradition is a very major part of of my worldview, that the, the people who've come before us are still here, That they might not be in the physical plane, but they're in the spiritual plane. And there is a relationship between the spiritual plane and the physical plane. And we're in communication with them all the time. And that we can draw on them. I think the other part about my village is we have our family communities that we're born in, like our parents. And then we have our chosen community. People that we connect with who are like-minded people that... I call them tribe, and I've, I've had the opportunity to build a really strong tribe in the Bay Area of like-minded individuals, mothers, educators, entrepreneurs, people who are in alignment with that same view. It's a very tight circle that always reaffirms me, that always reminds me of who I am, reminds me to stay on task, to stay on my path. But nature, which I find is my greatest teacher there, there's nothing in nature that gets to feel good when it transforms from one state to another nature doesn't operate that way nature operates in a way of like you understand who you are you understand who, your purpose and there's work that you have to do and you have to fight for that work sometimes you have to struggle you have to sacrifice and those aren't bad things because those allow you to build the muscle in order for you to fulfill your destiny, in order for you to learn the lessons so that you can advance to the next stage in your life. You know, in my tradition, we say that, you know, happiness and joy are more about having good character, being an integrity, and keeping a cool head. You know, our ancestors taught us to keep a cool head. You don't get too excited when things are going great and you don't get you don't get battered down when things aren't going the way that you want, that you just, you just stay cool. And so again, those are the the things that keep me grounded and keep me surrounded in my village.
2: With this current heart and mindset with the villages that you currently belong to and you currently grow with, what excites you or scares the shit out of you about the next, 10, 50 years?
0: Well, I think I'm a natural optimist, so there's not much that scares me. I do believe that some of our biggest advances, our biggest blessings come from pain. I think that we can decide at any moment that we want to reach another point in life without pain, but doesn't really work like that. It's always some type of wake up call, some type of challenge, some type of delay, <laughs> some type of disappointment that tends to be the motivator for for much of what we do. So even with things that might seem scary, I trust that there is a there is a, a silver lining in that. I trust that, that there is a blessing in that. I trust that there is good. You know, one of my teachers talks about one of the gifts of the transatlantic slave trade. You know, we're talking about over, over 10 million Africans that were transported across and scattered across the world. I mean, you know, our Ma'afa, our genocide, can seem like the most negative thing ever. How can you find any, any light, any solace in that? And yet one of the blessings of that was that we were able to bring all of our spiritualities together as African people and connect in a different way. And, and Africans in America have become on the vanguard, if you will, of of music and culture and building so many things that never would have happened if we hadn't been brought over here. So again, I don't really exist or dwell in this sense of Things are negative and positive. I live, everything is part of the spectrum and everything has to happen for the other thing to happen. The only reason you know the light is because you know the dark. You only know life because you know death. You know, everything in nature has a polarity for a reason and those aren't bad things. I'm excited about the future. I see young people charged up, fired up. I think young people have less separation, less boxes, less things compartmentalizing themselves. They're so clear on who they are. They're so clear on what we need in the world and what we don't. And if you look at history and I'm a student of history, I, I'm fascinated by history. History actually works. It doesn't work linearly. History is cyclical. You always go a couple, seemingly a couple steps forward and then you come a couple steps back and then you advance like five steps. you know, after slavery ended, We had Reconstruction. You had one of the largest um, amounts of blacks in politics ever. And after that, was the Jim Crow and, and lynching to, to take that out, you know, and Jim Crow and lynching went out and then you that moved into the, to the civil rights movement. But then you had this amazing black power movement. Then we went into the Reagan years and, you know, the prison industrial complex and crack cocaine and all these things that seemed really, really negative. And then hip hop came out of that, oh my God, like, what would the world be without hip hop? You know, and, and wouldn't look at what hip hop has done all over the world. And we know what's coming next is only gonna be better. We know that that's the cycles of nature. And I think when we tune in to nature, when we tune into the cycles, when we tap in to this greater universe, when we allow ourselves to have a totally different cosmology and not just buy into the dominant paradigm, you know, I call it, you know, what's the distraction of the day? You know, every day you wake up, you you open social media and there's a distraction. It's a political distraction. It's a, you know, a social distraction. It's a Kanye West distraction, whatever it is. And it dominates the narrative. It dominates the day. Everyone's talking about it. It creates this illusion that you're somehow informed, but the reality is, even if you don't even know what the distraction of the day is, it's the same old shit all the time. It's the same cycle of the same distraction. And so I think that, you know, that works for the dominant paradigm. The dominant paradigm wants to keep us distracted. They want to keep us hidden because then we're not out here fulfilling our true purpose. We're caught in their program. We're not building our own programs and you know if my ancestors who were able to go through slavery were able to hold on to optimism and hold on you know my my grandmother who worked as a maid who has a, had a 7th grade education and you know was staying on a stool washing dishes for white people before she could even reach the sink if she was able to maintain optimism you know i i really don't have an excuse <laughs> It's like my problems just start sounding pretty privileged at a certain point when people have come through well, well more extraordinary circumstances and done a hell of a lot more with their lives.
2: So talking with our guests, I noticed certain emotions come up, not just in them, but also in other founders. This got me curious about the psychology and science behind that. I called up licensed psychologist Dr. Margaret Jones, who has a doctorate in organizational psychology with an emphasis on training and development. Utilizing a strength-based focus, her psychological services and private practice emphasizes testing and assessment, and addresses a variety of issues including, but not limited to, depression, anxiety, trauma and abuse, and anger management. Her research focuses on issues of trauma and resilience. Part of her work and research can help us understand why people, especially entrepreneurs, tend to project our personal experiences onto others when giving advice to people we care about. Let's have her drop some knowledge on us. Hello? Hey, Dr. Jones, this is Jeff. I got a question for you. When we think we're giving advice to people we care about, especially entrepreneurs who like helping out, why is it common for us to inadvertently project our own traumas? What's, what's happening psychologically there?
1: That's a really good question, Jeffrey. Um, like a lot of aspects of human behavior, projection comes down to self-defense. We're projecting something we don't like about ourselves onto someone else, which we feel like protects us, and it actually does protect us from having to acknowledge parts of ourselves we don't like. We all project in our daily lives to protect ourselves against emotions, thoughts, and perceptions that we judge as being too bad or ugly, shameful, or uncontrollable. As an example, uh, a person might have thoughts of infidelity with respect to a spouse or partner. Instead of dealing with those undesirable thoughts consciously, the person unconsciously projects those feelings onto the other person and begins to think that the other may be having the affair. It's theorized this defense mechanism is a way for our minds to deal with aspects of our character that we consider to be flawed. And rather than admit to the flaw, we find a way to address it in a situation where it is free from personal connotations. By projecting these flaws, we can avoid having to consciously identify them, take ownership of them, and deal with them. Trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, rape, or natural disaster. A person may also experience trauma as a response to any event they find physically or emotionally threatening or harmful. A traumatized person can feel a range of emotions both immediately after the event and in the long term. They can feel overwhelmed, avoidant, helpless, angered, shocked, or have difficulty processing their experiences. Trauma can also have physical symptoms. Trauma's long-term effects on a person's well-being occurs if the symptoms persist and do not decrease in severity, which can indicate the trauma has developed into a mental health disorder called post-traumatic stress disorder. An example of trauma projection occurs with parenting sometimes. A mother or father may get mugged at a park and so they will not let their kids go to the park and justify it by saying they are being protective. The parent may be so traumatized by the experience, they do not have the capacity to teach their child how to identify and handle danger a traumatized parent may set their child up to experience feelings of fear and helplessness and avoidance by not demonstrating the skills to avoid danger or cope with danger. Again, this is not a conscious process.
2: Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you for the awesome conversation. I hope what we've talked about has sparked some new thoughts for our listeners to reflect on. We end each episode with this question. Ultimately, what's the point of all of this?
0: Ultimately, I believe, based on, again, my tradition, that we choose our lives, that we have descended from the heavenly plane, from the cosmos, from outer space, and we come down and we say, hey, I got something to learn and we decide that we are going to learn a certain lesson in life and through those lessons, we receive certain gifts and through those lessons and those gifts, the point is to fulfill your destiny, to find, discover what your destiny is and to stay on the path towards it. And everything in this society is pretty much designed to pull you away from your destiny and again, put you into their program. And so I think the point of life is to be in a constant state of wonder, to be in a state of curiosity to be in a state of sacrifice, to be in a state of joy, to hold the whole spectrum, all of the things, right, that we have, the joy, the pleasure, the pain, and to move through them courageously, knowing that we're here to do work that's bigger than us. And so your destiny is something that should haunt you. It's something that no matter how much money you make, You're not happy if you're not fulfilling your destiny. If you're not fulfilling your destiny, it comes to you in your daydreams. It comes to you in your night dreams. It's it's what you see yourself doing. And then typically, once you break out of that, you talk yourself out of it. Oh, yeah, I just saw myself doing all this dope shit, but that's not really my life. Like, I could never really do that. Like, who am I to do that? And that's actually your higher self showing you, look, this is what you've come to do. This is it. And if we can just keep hold of that, stay true to that, keep that as our North star, surround ourselves with the right people, the right self-talk in our head to remind us of who we are. You know, in the Native American tradition, they said that every decision that they make, they make for the next seven generations. You know, what would it look like if you woke up every day and you were thinking about the seventh generation from you? Like, that's so powerful. And that's the point. That's the point. The point is we come here, we have an opportunity to live in this amazing physical realm. And our job is to live here with grace, to live here with dignity, and to leave it better than it was before we got here.
2: Find fully curated experiences of all of our episodes at talkhumantome.com backslash episodes also take a look at the work and causes our guests and visiting experts deeply care about at talkhumantome.com backslash discover we like working with sponsors that fundamentally care about helping people reflect and reconnect our sponsors are offering special treats to our fans directly in the show notes or at talkhumantome.com backslash sponsors the show takes a dedicated squad shout outs to designer lala openny for our show's artwork and to audio engineer Mauricio Escamilla for his audio wizardry, please check out their companies and creations in the show notes or at backslash squad And finally, infinite love to our advisors, mentors, friends, and family. You make our existence and our ability to keep going possible. Be well. Be curious. Practice empathy and stay human.